Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 75th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Kathy Longo. Kathy is the president and founder of Flourish Wealth Management, an advisory firm in the Minneapolis area that oversees nearly $130 million of assets under management for 61 affluent clients. What's unique about Kathy, though, is that she had already successfully climbed the partnership track ladder at a billion-dollar-plus independent RAA to become one of their next-generation successor owners, yet ultimately decided to sell her shares and walk away from that business to start a new one in order to scratch her entrepreneurial itch. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Kathy structured and built the staffing of her firm, launching initially by using a third-party TAM provider, then transitioning to do the investment management internally as the firm grew by having her husband take over as the director of investments, the culture snapshot document that she created to screen potential new employees and ensure they're likely a good fit, and why it's so crucial as a small business owner to embrace the philosophy of slow to hire, fast to fire with new employees. We also talk about the value of having a study or mastermind group, why Kathy decided to join two different study groups, one that's comprised of all women financial planners in the industry from the Minneapolis area, and the other that's comprised of all women business owners outside the industry through the Women's Presence Organization, or WPO. And why having a study group of peers and colleagues you can commiserate with and and get advice from is so essential to running your advisory business, especially when you're launching a firm and hit the inevitable challenges and emotional roller coaster that comes with building your business from scratch. And be certain to listen to the end, where Kathy talks about why she decided to write a book to further propel the growth of her advisory firm, and why and how she decided to invest in hiring an outside firm to help with the writing and book creation process. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Kathy Longo. Welcome, Kathy Longo, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to this podcast because, you know, I was trying to figure, you you and I go back to something like 12 or 13 years ago. I, I, I was trying to remember the first time we crossed paths. I think it was when you were involved with the national board for the financial planning association back in the mid two thousands. And I was doing chapter leadership at the time. And so I was off at that annual chapter leadership conference that the FPA does in, in Denver every year. And, and I remember being at the event and, and seeing you and like, this is a terrible thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for a moment to our FPA world, like our (laughs) FPA world has a lot of, shall we say, older gentlemen, (laughs) kind of the age demographic. And here you are, this woman in your 30s when everybody else is in their 50s. I'm like, oh, so this is cool. So there are actually other young people in FPA world because I wasn't sure for a while. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I was like, oh, this is so exciting. Like there are, there actually are younger people in leadership in our financial planning world. This is a promising sign. You know, we have a little bit more of that now. There's been, I think, a big sort of surge in next-gen engagement and activity in both chapter level and increasingly at the national level. But like 10 plus years ago, there was very, very little of that. 
And so I just I remember being really excited saying like, okay, we we do have like young blood focus on the future of the profession here. This is awesome. And I still still remember meeting you first for the first time at that event. Yeah, I, re- I remember meeting you too. And I, we were sitting around that fireplace and just chatting. And I'm like, Oh, my gosh, this Michael is so impressive and so smart. And then just following you through your career. So it's, it's been fun to think back on Oh, that's it. I met Michael, like early in the days. We've come a long way. It, it's it serves me a little to sort of reflect back and like, it was like 12 years ago or so when when were you in your FPA national board cycle? Was that like 2000? Seven, eight, six. nine, six, seven, eight. Yeah, six and seven. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So just coming off like FPA's lawsuit with the SEC and all yeah. sorts of dramatic stuff going on at the time. Yeah, exactly. No, that was good. I, I mean, that was one of those powerful moments being on the board and being part of that decision. Yeah. I remember it was a telephone call and those were great times, both not only serving locally on the Minnesota board and then going to the national board. Yeah, it's it's. It was a fascinating thing for me to me to see. You know, I, I like it's been enough years out now that I, you know, not a lot of people even realize. So you know, we we've just like we're kind of coming to the close of this last round of fighting about the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule and having the the rule vacated in court and kind of going back to the way that things were. And and you know, for a lot of us on the side of fiduciary advocacy, this is a very unfortunate loss. Even though the DOL rule wasn't perfect, it was I think advancing the ball down the field. But, you know, 12 years ago or so, we had the same thing, but it was from the other side. It was the SEC had granted an exemption that was allowing broker-dealers to do fee-based accounts as though they were RIAs, basically, but without registering as RIAs and being subject to a fiduciary duty. And so it was viewed as this, like, giant loophole exception around the fiduciary rule. And the Financial Planning Association, like the national FPA, sued the SEC and won and and had that rule vacated, which at the time was yeah. this like massive David and Goliath fight that nobody thought the FPA could win. You know, the organization actually had to, because it was so controversial to the brokerage firms that were in the FPA, the FPA had actually spun off the broker dealer portion of the organization into what is what we now know as FSI, Financial Services Institute, just to separate out the broker dealers so that they could move forward and sue the SEC over the fiduciary rule. I know just like getting an organization to the point that it's willing to make that kind of leap and and lawsuit jump. I, I can only imagine what the conversations were like in the room at the time as everybody's doing the gut check of, do you really want to risk like the reputation and the unintended consequences for this multi-million dollar organization by suing a regulator? <laughs> Yeah, no, it was a big decision. And then, and just powerful too. I, d- I just remember being on that the final call and with the vote of moving forward and just that feeling deep inside that this was what was right to do. Yeah. How did it feel from your end to find out like when the ruling came down and you guys won, was it like, oh, oh my God, I can't believe we won? Or were we like, oh no, we knew we had this, like we we were good. Court saw it our way. Well, you 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 hope and believe that that it'll be seen that way. But then, I mean, it was a massive undertaking, and so you know, just the power of standing up what's right for the profession and challenging like a big organization. So it was rewarding. I really look back at my time on 
both the local FPA Minnesota and the national board, that piece of like where you need to give back to your profession and yet you have that same rewarding piece that comes back to you and everything that you give, you get back in 20 times fold. Yeah. I mean, I still look back like a lot of the, a lot of the businesses I'm involved in today are all people I met in like the first five years or so that I was volunteering at FPA 15 years ago. You know, it's, it's just, it's, amazing where those relationships go and how they how they evolve over time like it's still the primary reason that i pound the table for anybody who's younger and like younger relatively speaking if you're if you're in your 20s or 30s or just the first five to ten years of your career like you're nuts if you're not spending some time getting involved in one of the professional associations and and spending some time there not not just because it's good to give back to the profession. And, you know, frankly, in your early years, you have a little bit more time flexibility because there aren't as many clients and staff and other things to manage yet. But also because, you know, we, we throw around the term generically of like, I'm networking, you know, I didn't go at the time to network, I just did it to get involved. But now as I look back, like, I was networking, or at least I networked with <laughs> a whole bunch of other people some of whom now I have businesses with and I'm doing some stuff that's really exciting for me, driven entirely off of just early relationships that formed and people that I stayed in touch with over the years. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, you know, from a relationship standpoint, you know, like the ability to reach out to some of like different connections nationally or even locally, like early on when I joined FPA, I met some other group of women financial planners that we have a local study group. And gosh, that must be, let's see, my oldest is 21. So she was a kindergartner at that time. So we've been together quite a long time. I don't know, like Janet Stanzik is in there. So we call ourselves, I didn't name name the organization, but I happily accept the title, The Goddesses of the Financial goddesses Planning. Goddesses of Financial Planning. Group. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I came a little bit later into the group, I guess, that they had little tiaras early on, but I, I still am waiting for I'll, my tiara. Uh, I'll have to send Janet an email, or maybe she'll be listening to this podcast. Janet, you have to get Kathy her tiara. <laughs> she she really wants her tiara now. <laughs> I know. But it's been, so being a part of that group where there's been support, you know, when I first joined, I was, I know we'll talk about this later, I was a partner at a larger RA in town, and then to starting my own firm, you know, so being like the large firm to being the, oh my gosh, I'm just starting firm. It's been just a great support network. So not only locally, but just all of the national connections. I can't imagine life without FPA and all the community that I've built through that organization. So did the study group come? through FPA or just people you happen to met, meet from FPA or or just a separate like a bunch of women advisors in the Minneapolis area said hey let's form a study group and and you got plugged in Yeah so they started I think 4 or 5 years before I was invited to join and there was a couple of us that they asked to join the group that we saw each other at one of the conferences but the group is very FPA centric so you know attends a local symposium and our local meetings. So it definitely is really rooted in the FPA. Okay. And, and what do you guys do? Study groups are all over the place. Like some are online and some are in person and some meet once a year and some meet weekly and like just full gamut. So what is, what does study group mean to you? Like what is the goddess, what are the goddesses of financial planning do together? 
So we meet monthly, although we take a month or two off in the summer and sometimes do something socially during that time. We happen to meet in the office building where my office is at. So we there's like, oh, there's three of us. No, actually, there's four of us that are in the same office building, all on different floors. But we meet once a month for like two and a half hours. And we'll kind of build our agenda kind of in a shared format of like what's on people's minds. So it's a little loose format. So sometimes it's about, oh, like recently we were talking about bringing in that next generation of owner and what are people's ideas there. We'll often talk about what we've learned from various conferences and bring that back to the group. So kind of building our topics together. Sometimes we'll bring in an outside speaker speaker, but there's just such a wealth of knowledge to be shared with the different members that, you know, we usually have no trouble filling our time together. And then I would say too that it's been a great resource in between meetings. So, you know, question comes up or you just, you know, what, what resource are you using for this marketing initiative? We shoot each other emails and, you know, immediately you get a response from, hey, connect with this individual or, you know, whatever it might be. And especially in the early days of starting Flourish, you know, before I I really had more of a team. It was just great to have like all of these other access to firms, which, you know, more knowledge for me. And, and how many, how many women are involved? Like how many come to meetings or, or are part of this? Oh, let's see. About 10 of us. There's about 10 of us. And and I actually have two study groups. So, because I really, I really believe in the value of study groups. So this is my planning study group, but I also have another group called WPO, Women's Presidents Organization. We meet monthly too. It's actually a little bit longer of a meeting. It's about four hours of a meeting. And Women's Presidents Organization is built around women business owners. And so like in my chapter, my study group, we have oh, about 20 women, all different business different business types so we don't compete against each other. But that's the group that I use for learning more about running the business and building the firm. And I've been involved with that group now for, oh, probably about 14 years. So those are my two primary study groups. And both and both are locally based. Both are locally based. Yeah. Although I guess so like WPO, the like Financial Planning Association saw that's a national organization with local chapters. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a now it's actually international organization WPO okay. is and we have local chapters. So we we have oh gosh, is it six or seven chapters? We actually rival we have more chapters than New York does. So we have a really strong women business owner community here. So yeah, that that's how they organize chapters within the community. So help me understand, like I, this is a conversation I feel like I'm seeing more and more in the, in the industry these days, the, the discussion of women only groups, like women only study groups. Cause I know both of the ones you mentioned are women only financial planners and women only business owners. So like for someone that's trying to make this decision or perhaps like a, a young woman or a career changer coming in trying to make this decision? Like, how do you evaluate women only study groups versus broader study groups? Like, how should we, how do we think about this? So for me, so I'll, I'll tell a little story. So there was, and this is a little, this is more related to WPO. So I would say my WPO group is a combination of both professional and have become personal friends too. And my husband was driving me to the airport where I was going to meet up with three of my WPO 
study mates, whatever we want to call ourselves. And my husband was saying, you know, I'm so glad that you finally have friends. And I'm like, what? I, I have friends. And he's like, no, like people that really get you on a level of being a woman business owner, being a mom, and what that means, you know, being involved in her community, and just having all of kind of similar kind of dimensions to their life. And that's what really struck me is that it was this like holistic way to people who understood me as a woman business owner and as a mom and as a friend. And it really just was this Oh, safe place to be like, you know, so some of the things like, you know, and I know that I've heard you talk about this too, like this imposter syndrome, like, how do you really show up and create this vulnerability with other people? And for me, like I've felt just it's a lot easier for me to do with other women. It's also like part of my story as I started Flourish with women who truly got me and challenged me to, you know, maybe set a different path for myself than than I was headed down before at my prior firm. So it's just, it's been that right type of community that I feel like being with other women, it has been about empowering and lifting each other up and also challenging us, challenging each other when we're maybe, you know, can be held up to a higher standard. So for women that do want to find a local study group, like how do you advocate for them to do it? I mean, I guess, well, you can literally look for your local chapters of WPO if you want to sort of women business owners, but women financial planner, like are you are the goddesses going to make goddess chapters in locations across the the country? Like how do you how do you make this happen if it doesn't already exist where you are? Well, so if it doesn't already exist, I think you can pull together your own study group of like like-minded people or, or you know, not always like-minded, but like people that you have some shared interest with. It's good to bring the different perspectives there. But FPA, like, so, I mean, there's even a younger woman study group that meets in our building too, that, that kind of came through FPA too. So FPA is a great place to try to build a study group or see which ones are already in existence that are taking on new members. And then if that's not the case, you can create your own community, whether it's you have to come together with some kind of shared purpose. You want to be a better business person. You want to, you know, focus on marketing. Oh, actually, I'm in another study group that I just thought of. It's a newer one. We don't meet as frequently, but like Dimensional Funds is a fund provider that we work with. And they recently started a study group with people that are focused on marketing and media initiatives. And so, again, we're coming together around that shared purpose. So I think it's being open, looking to see what your interest and what you'd want to form it around and then organizing around that purpose. And and do you worry, you, know, you, you mentioned like part of WPO structure is that they're women in complementary businesses as opposed to ones that would potentially compete to sort of reduce that competitiveness aspect or fear your goddesses of financial planning group like they're all local advisory firms you are in the same market together granted it's a it's a pretty big market because minneapolis is a large metropolitan area but do you worry about things like local competition against each other is that an issue or a discussion no, you know, it's never really been an issue, or at least I've not worried about it. There's been times where like a prospect has come and they're interviewing another firm, but I think there's so, there's so many individuals and couples that need good financial planning that if somebody else is the right fit for them, then I'd say, you know, that that's just the way it, it needs to be. But we, we've had, we have really open conversations about whether it's struggles or, you know, like where we're seeing challenges, like in growing the firm. And so 
you have to go into it with a sense of confidentiality in terms of we're all trying to do better and build our firms. And and I think that there's so much to gain too in like people who are in similar type experiences, just as there is to gain from people in different types of businesses to be able to put another lens on it. That if you can look for that positive of, okay, it's all about growth and helping one another, then you can get past competing against one another because it really doesn't come up in terms of, it doesn't hold us back. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess at the end of the day, like, I always see a lot of discussions around the fears of competition and study groups, but I mean, I don't know what the exact population is, but I think like Minneapolis, St. Paul, metropolitan area has got to be a couple million people. Most of us have successful businesses with dozens of clients, maybe a, maybe a few hundred if we go large. So like at the end of the day, 10 fellow firm owners that are all in the room together, like you're going to collectively serve a thousand clients out of millions of people like yeah that's a good way to kind of enough clients to go around yeah yeah right so so you you mentioned a few times that the study groups were kind of a big factor for you in supporting the the launch of your firm so maybe just to get us oriented like what is flourish wealth management as exists today can you just tell us a little bit about the the firm, the size, what you do, who you do it for. Yeah. So Flourish Wealth Management, we just celebrated our four-year birthday or anniversary. And so I started Flourish four years ago. Right now, we have about 61 households or family relationships. But we'll kind of combine if we're working maybe with a, a kid in there that that's just part of the household where it's not just they're not, we're not doing full financial planning for them. So 61 households. Our assets right now are $136 million. In our client base, about 40% of our clients are women that have come to us via transition, like divorce, death, or inheritance, or are planning for some transition. Like I mentioned with my WPO community, I've attracted a lot of women business owners too, whereas they're anticipating transition. The mix of client base is it's about 50% in accumulation phase, kind of still building their wealth, and then 44% in spend down, and the rest, like 8%, is just kind of in preservation. They're not necessarily using their assets, but not adding to it. Right now, in terms of a team, we have there's four of us. So I, the president, and then the primary relationship manager with our clients. We work as a team. So I'll bring in another wealth manager. So Michelle Lenz is one of our wealth managers who joined our firm in December. We've had a little bit of transition, which we we can talk about that a little later too. And then we have a new individual who is a client services manager, and she takes care of everything from running some of the office, the, our coordination with Charles Schwab, all of the paperwork. And then we have Jay, who is also my husband, who is leading our director of investments and handling a lot of our investment operations. And then he also does a lot with me on the marketing and he's really a great communicator and can somehow take my random thoughts and put them into you know really great content or take a second look at my materials. So that's been great, especially because I'm working on a book right now that we're in our final edit. Some other parts that we can talk about. And then we're looking for one other like associate wealth manager to join the team. And then I think we should be good to go. But that's Flourish as we stand today. So just kind of thinking through the 
the math here on on sizing. So $136 million under management is 61 households. So your your typical client is is two million dollars or so of assets under management. So you know, I guess a, a fairly affluent level for for most advisors, although not like super ultra high net worth tens of millions of dollars sorts of folks. Yeah, that's true. And and services that you provide them, like you you've mentioned AUM. So you're 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 doing investment management. Are you doing planning work as well? Do you do you know some each, both for all? Like what does the service model look like for clients? So both for all. So we we charge one wealth management fee, but it includes all of the planning work that we do. So, you know, it is everything from you know looking at their state plan, like the whole gamut in that financial umbrella, the understanding their income expenses, helping them with their charitable giving, the investment management is all part of that. But we most of our clients, we have one new client that does not want us to take on the investment management. That's pretty rare, but we always want to be, we won't take on a client only for investments. We really want to get into the nitty gritty of their life and tackle the financial planning with them. And your fee structure for all of this, are you, are you charging assets under management? Do you do planning fees instead or some blend of both? Again, there's that whole conversation, like, what is that perfect formula? But we are really still on the assets under management. So the first million, we charge 1%. And then it drops to 80 basis points in the next 4 million and then drops to 60 basis points after that. We will sometimes take on a client where we'll, maybe they're still in that accumulation, we'll set a flat fee until their assets build, you know, based on complexity, either between five and $5,000 So somebody who has a lot of future potential for growth as a client, we will set that fee and work with them that way, even though their investments aren't at, the, at that level. So do you nominally have like a half million or $750,000 minimum to get clients to those levels on, a, on an AUM fee if they're otherwise going to do asset business with you? You know, target a million, but if there's somebody that is younger and has that potential to build towards a larger, we'll consider working with them. And the other piece, too, that I really want to try to have a balance of clients that are still accumulating that we can grow with, and then also clients that are, you know, in more of that spend down phase. Just as like a diversification effect for the business, like we want some accumulators if we're going to have some decumulators as a deliberate strategy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a deliberate strategy. And have you experimented with other fee schedules or or other structures as well? Or just you're using AUM, you're happy with it, it's working for the business? I have not experimented with any other fee structures. Some of when I left my prior firm and I, I did have some clients that followed me, you know, it was hard to, although I lowered the fee schedule. But I did that in comparing oh, a dozen different financial planning firms in town to see where, where they were setting their assets under management fee. But I did I did lower the fee. It was hard to switch to a completely new model, or at least I hadn't figured out and still haven't figured out what that right solution is. I think that there there is probably a better model, but it's not one that I've yeah. figured out yet. Uh, I think it's a collective discussion for the whole industry these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you brought on, you said you brought on Michelle as a, as a wealth manager and that you're 
hiring for another associate as well. So if anybody's listening and looking, we'll have a, a link in the show notes to Kathy's firm. So if you decide what you hear here, go ahead and reach out to her and give her a, a call. This is episode 75. So kids.com slash 75. And we'll have links to, to Kathy's firm in the show notes. Okay, perfect. And post it quickly too. <laughs> Who knows, right? We'll just turn financial advice success into a hiring podcast. Yeah, thank but, you. But absolutely. But I... I'm just wondering, so from the business end, that's that's a lot of transition to go from what I guess was, you know, six or nine months ago, it was Kathy and Jay and a client services manager. And now suddenly there's a wealth manager and an associate that's that's coming on board. So I'm 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 just curious, what's what's driving all that hiring and and shift? Is that just you're finding you're approaching your own capacity at 61 households and $130 million under management? Or do you come at it from a different perspective? Yeah, more from a growth perspective. And then if I step back a little bit, and this has probably been one of the harder parts as a business owner is to get that hiring decision right. And so when I started Flourish, I worked with a TAMP. So I worked with BAM, or which was part of Buckingham. Yeah, BAM Alliance, Buckingham. Okay. Yeah, I, I know you had Adam on recently. So I that's where I started. And I was with them for about three years. And they were a great community and offered me so many resources so that I could launch Flourish and be Kathy on day one and yet have a huge team behind me. But then as I was building the firm, I was realizing that I was creating, using different like offerings, whether it's technology or I had my vision on how financial planning worked with clients and how I wanted to build that. So I originally had one team member that joined me early on as an associate wealth manager. Well, she left in November and to another position and also was at the point of starting her family. She just had a baby at the end of last oh. month. But yeah, so she she has moved on. So I lost her, which she was great and really grew with the firm. And then I had another individual who was coming on in more of an investment role, taking on like that CFA role. And as we were transitioning from BAM, he was really helpful in, you know, maybe taking on some of that role. I don't think that he was necessarily a fit for a smaller firm. This has been like my challenge in hiring. And so both of those two individuals gave me notice within two weeks of each other. And so... Wait, so just to be clear, so like was Jay involved at the time as well? Or just like there were four of you, you, your client service manager, this CFA investment person and your associate wealth manager and half your staff gave you notice in two weeks? Oh, half the staff. So I didn't have the client services manager at that point. It was so then it was down to Jay and me. No, that was some hard moments at the end of last year in terms of, oh my goodness, like I think the piece that I realized is we didn't have as much cross training. How could you with like being small? And I think that is some of the challenges of being small is, you know, as you're building, having to wear multiple hats and not everyone loves that, that idea. Like I, I love being able to jump in and, you know, help when I can. And yet others, you know, they think like, please keep me in my defined role. And, you know, if I see something that needs to be done, that's, I just want to keep doing what my job is doing. So we were, 
At the end of last year, before I had noticed, we were in the process of like kind of bringing on more of a client service manager so that we can move up the role of the associate wealth manager. So take off paperwork from them and also bring in a little bit of more admin responsibility for me. So we were looking for that person. And then both of those individuals gave notice. And so it was really hard, but it was also an opportunity to kind of step more into the nitty gritty of the business for a period of time. I feel like we're, I'm kind of coming out from that period of like, oh, rethinking our processes, what, what's efficient, how are we working, how do we maximize some of our technology? But it was, it was like a crazy time too, which came at the time where I had already committed to writing my book oh, and a publishing company with deadlines. I already signed the contract. So it was like we were moving forward on that front. Oh, we did a home remodel that was like kind of coming a little one, but it was crazy on all fronts and then trying to find those right team players. So we were hiring three and I hired one individual that did not work out after seven weeks. I, I am I am learning from my like WPO sisters who say like hire slowly, fire quickly. And so this one individual just really didn't have that detail that we needed, you know, being somebody is moving money. So I made that decision pretty quickly. And so my other two team members, the client service manager, and then the wealth manager, both named Michelle, I did debate like, okay, can you not hire a person because they have the same name as the other person you already hired? But I was looking on your website, they're totally different because one spells Michelle with one L and the other one spells Michelle with two L's. (laughs) Yeah, and the plus is that when you yell Michelle, you get like two it's very good as a business owner. To just we we entrepreneurs want our like immediate response, so you doubled the odds that you will get a problem solved immediately. Yeah, so I I think that's good. Though one of the Michelles, Michelle White, said to one of our clients, "Just like oh, we're just trying to make it easier on the oh. clients so that they don't have to remember a new name." So the first Michelle came with the 1L in December, and her background is in financial planning. She was a financial planning major at Madison, Wisconsin. And then she went to a small firm in town, and then she was at U.S. Bank in their trust and estates group. So one of the things that I really appreciated is she knew what it meant to work in a small firm and that she liked it and missed it because that has been a challenge for me in figuring out that right fit for the company. And then the other Michelle, came and had worked with an advisory firm in Atlanta for many years. And she had moved up here for her husband's position and that firm kind of closed. And so she had a great background in both compliance and understanding the industry. And so she she hasn't been with me that long, like five weeks, but is really, really doing well and so appreciative of her industry knowledge. And then Back to kind of Jay. So what was Jay doing before all of these changes? Jay was focused on building more of our retirement services offering. And the thought there, and we we have a couple of retirement plans. And for our retirement plans, we still coordinate with BAM and we use their retirement platform, which is a great way to because there's just so much knowledge and information that you have to have there. So we are still working with BAM on that front. But Jay was building out the retirement business. And kind of going back to Jay and I, Jay and I actually met at an investment class. You actually, you, like you met through the industry, okay? Yeah, 
We did. I I joke that. So my boyfriend sends me economic news, not flowers or chocolates, but I get economic news. And so he's he's done better. So he brought some flowers for Mother's Day, but he's he's definitely improved since then. But we met at an investment conference and he has worked in different industries and not different industries, I should say, in different firms, both more so on like the institutional side, working with clients. And so as he was looking to go more into the retirement planning world, he was, you know, starting to talk to firms that would would be competitors of Flourish, and so we thought, well, why don't we bring Jay into Flourish and develop that role here with some of our changes as we kind of continue to refine the roles. He's taken a little more lead on the investment process and leading that initiative. So that's been the challenging part of the transitions that I've experienced in the last few months. So Jay originally was going to work on building this retirement services side of things because you were using BAM as a TAMP to do the outsource investment management. And then with all the rest of the change, you decided to bring Jay internal to the portfolio management side and wind down the BAM relationship. Like, was that part of this transition? We had we had ended our BAM relationship last March or April. So that happened before like the transitions of the individual who left who left Flourish to go to a larger firm. I'm just curious what what sort of drives that transition because I, I feel like t- you know tamps are one of those things that there's just there's just a lot of discussion these days of is it you know is it worth still doing it internally the firm is it just easier and better to outsource it as you said like there's a lot of appeal when you're getting started just so you don't have to hire all the staff and infrastructure to do this stuff. You can let a TAMP do it. But obviously, you, you grew pretty quickly. So it's it's one thing to do that when you're just trying to get your first couple clients and the first couple million dollars on, in the door when you're north of $100 million and there's a million dollars of gross revenue. Like You got some dollars to hire staff and do this internally if you want. So like, was it a dollars and cents kind of business decision to you? Here's what I'm paying BAM, and I think I can just do it more on my own at this size, so I'm going to hire someone or, or work with Jay and have him do this? Or was there was it something else that drove the decision about using a TAMP and then not using a TAMP? The decision to use, I actually didn't even know what a TAMP was when I was like looking for how do I build Flourish and what are those offerings? Like, how do I put this all together? And so discovering the TAMP model and BAM in particular, they were like so helpful in getting started and having like all the technology and the contracts and a community of individuals. They're really a great community. So I don't, I am so appreciative of like starting with them. But one of the things I really loved about starting Flourish is it was like a redo, a chance to redo like all technology. It's really hard to like change a CRM, you know, when you're in a large firm or to like find like what's the latest, greatest, even though you might be appealing to, you don't necessarily want to take the pain to go through go through it so it's like so fun to like start everything from scratch but i found like i was using different planning software than the bam community or they've since gone to orion but they weren't on orion when i first started and i'm like you know i want i want to have client portals and i want all of these resources so i started to just build my own offering and use my own technology so then it was just a values piece like i wasn't using a lot of their resources to 
justify the price. And it was just, you know, I'd been a part of a wealth management firm. So I knew how to build build the firm and think about direction. And so as we, and then you start to scale and you have more clients and your fixed costs are covered, you know, via that technology. So that was just kind of mine. It was a hard decision to, and, and then we could go directly to, to like, you know, whether if we're wanting more research and help from dimensional funds, we could work directly with them. And we had more mass, like we could be on the Charles Schwab platform. You know, day one, I didn't have any assets. You know, you, you don't don't get a lot of choices at that point. So you you work with who you can work with. Yeah. And, you know, you don't know, like, when will they come? I, I don't know. You know, I have an unsolicited. I, <laughs> good question. <laughs> but yeah, so I think it was more just about growth and we did grow fast enough. And, you know, as we continue to grow and invest in the company that we just weren't utilizing their services the same way. So do you have a vision ultimately of like, do you, do you want to build a big firm and grow to a, and grow and scale to a large size? Or do you just want to get to a certain size that's comfortable and then say, okay, we're, we're good here. Cause I, you know, particularly when you go through setbacks, like half our team lost, walked away in two weeks. I've got to imagine at some point there's like, you know, or we could just like work with, 30 of our best clients and Jay and I can just do that. And we'll have Michelle as an operations manager and just that'll be that. And we'll have a very comfortable, happy, lower stress business than going through all this growth and hiring and turnover stuff. You know, that that's a good thought now. No, I'm just teasing. I never thought that way. One of your, your study group people didn't say like, hey, just hunker down with half your clients and sit back and, and just work with your work with your top set of clients. Yeah. So that didn't come to mind as an option, but I think it's because I do want to grow a large firm. I love working both on the business and being a business owner and like using my entrepreneurial skills. And I love working with clients. I know that like down the road, like I can't work with every single client, but I hope to develop other team members that will they will take on new clients. You know, I, I continue to work with my existing clients because I, I definitely want to always have some aspect of working with clients and being involved in their lives. And but I also love building the firm and seeing seeing what we can create. And I think that, you know, we talked about that untapped client potential. There's so many people that need good financial planning out there. It's a goal to change change their lives and their attitudes towards money and open up new possibilities. And so that's really what drives me is about being able to reach more people and then to create career paths too. So I think that with a firm, like I want to have an opportunity where both Michelle's, you know, want to grow and Michelle White, who's the client service manager, you know, talks about wanting to take on some more planning responsibility, you know, as we go forward and the other one wants to grow in her career. I want to have those career options. So I didn't think about slowing down at that point but it's funny like how that thought never came to my mind no i guess that that's sort of the the nature of entrepreneurship when you really have a vision for a larger business that it it just it's just sort of natural of course we're just gonna have to deal with what we got to deal with and go hire two more people to replace the the two people that we lost you know it, it is a tough challenge point though that like that that moment in particular for most firms you know the 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 only harder thing than hiring your first staff member or two is losing your first staff member or two. Because once you grow to that point and you start delegating stuff down, like it's it's really hard to go backwards. Like you can. The business now does more than what you can do alone. That's why you had other people. So you get to this point of 
very well. If you've hired one or two and made that leap, like the only way you go backwards is you have to start letting go of clients and and deliberately run a small business if you're going to go backwards. Otherwise, you you always have to keep rehiring and replacing and trying to move forward. Yeah, that is like I I hadn't thought about that until you said, but that was a really hard part about losing team and then and also not taking it personally like like what did i do or what is it about flourish and recognizing that there's there's like key transitions in people's lives and not taking it personally maybe and yet but also taking it personally to reflect on like the firm and you know are we being true to our values one of the we have this one document because we which is our core values and it then it talks about which our core values are bring excellent and heart in everything we do make a difference, grow and share our experience and insights, take initiative and be resourceful, and then appreciate and celebrate is all kind of one together. But then we have this culture snapshot of like what works at Flourish like and what doesn't work, you know? So like one of them, they're like, keep your promises and over deliver on projects and deadlines. The counter to of like what doesn't work is letting others down. If you can't make a make a date, tell us early and often. Plan B, well prepared is better strategy than hope. So it, it has got like fifteen different like describing our culture and giving examples. But it is being true to like okay, our culture is one where we are going to have growth. We want people that come energized, that they are resourceful, and trying to build the team around that. And yet knowing that that's not that's not going to be whatever you person wants. So how do I continue to be better at finding those right people? So I'm fascinated this idea of a culture snapshot. Like I've I've heard core values before. We spent time on them for some of our 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 businesses as well, but I haven't I haven't heard culture snapshot before. So can you talk a little bit more like where did that come from and what it, what is that? Well, it came from one of my WPO sisters. She used it in her firm, which is she did fashion solutions. And so she, you know, I think I was talking a lot about like, how do you think about culture and your firm? And most people have core values, but like, really, what does that mean? Like go into the nitty gritty of describing it because people relate more to like those little snippets of meaning around it. Like one of the other things, like what works, heart, humor, fun, and can laugh at yourself versus what doesn't self centered, guarded, easily offended and overly sensitive. So like, and I'm willing to share this and you could put it out in your link if you find it interesting. Yeah, if you could, like, I'd, I'd love to, to share it out. So for anybody who's, who's interested, you know, again, this is episode 75. So you can go to kitsis.com slash 75. And I, I guess we'll put a copy of Kathy's culture snapshot document. So it's a document, like it's a, a multi-page thing that you hand to employees or hand to prospective employees to say, you know, here, here's what life is like here. Yeah. So it's a one page document. So it's all on one page and I use it in the interviewing process to really like talk through and just be as upfront as I can about like who we are as a culture and be really deliberate. And then we use it in terms of like our reviews that we do for employees, like measuring them to, to these standards to looking for ways to intersperse it in like recognition of like, Hey, that is like, so, so on in terms of, you know, our culture. So it's just a great way to, to talk about the firm for prospective employees, for existing team members, and to keep that front and center. Interesting. Interesting. And so you use that alongside of a core values kind of statement of Mm -hmm. just, yeah, here's what it's like here. You know, does this connect with you? When you're when you're going through that hiring process, 
Right. Yeah. One of the snapshots is like direct communication with each other, openness, transparency, and above all, honesty. So like I can think of like an example in the past where, you know, this idea of not creating triangles. So, you know, if there is something going on, being direct and, you know, saying, hey, let's kind of think about how this works in our culture. And here's kind of an example of, you know, you know, not going around to another team member when you're bothered by the probably me <laughs> bothered by me. So like, how, how can we work to be direct? What do I have to do to create a more open environment or, you know, what's getting in the way of that? So, it, you know, just using it in conversations, it's, it's just nice to put an example to go back to open up that conversation. Interesting. Interesting. So, and I guess, unfortunately, you've, you've, you've had a lot of occasions to use this over the past six months as you've had to go through a hiring process to replace a few people. Yeah, exactly. So any other lessons learned? Like, were you using this with the original people who didn't fit or you created this after they didn't fit to try to figure out how to you know, not have bad fits next time? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering where, where this came in the progression of having some, some staff turnover or, or like lessons learned as you reflect back now on what you're prior hiring process was? Well, we hadn't had any hires for about that 18-month period. So the one individual who went for a larger firm was with me about 18 months. And so it was created somewhere along those lines. The piece I know that I can do better as a, a business owner, and I think in like that one quick hire I had first like seven weeks of just calling it earlier is, you know, I have to hold myself really accountable to having the hard conversations and recognizing, you know, so the individual who went to the large firm was probably not a good fit early on. And I had seen signs of it and know our, our values and what our culture is like. And yet, because I knew there would be pain and transition, didn't deal with it right away. And so it all worked out in a different way. But that's one of those things that in reflection, and it's hard to let go of any person, whether they leave you or you leave them. I think I can do a better job of just really making sure that that person's the right fit because that energy that it creates for the team or when it pulls away from the energy for the team is just so important. I think in a small team, in a big team, like all teams, like anyone who's not bringing that right energy is going to influence others. Yeah, it's truly one of those things that like I just, I had to live it for a while in my in my own businesses to really appreciate that whole slow to hire, fast to fire phenomenon that, you know, just it's hard to fire people. It feels absolutely awful. I've only really had to do that very few times through my career and everyone just feels horrible. And every single time it's happened, like within days afterwards, it was amazing how much better I felt <laughs> because I underestimated how much just like the negativity or the problems of the team member that wasn't a good fit was dragging me down and dragging the business down. And at least for me, I, I, I couldn't think about the next hire and how we could get someone better until I actually made the termination and let the, and let the prior one go. Cause as long as the person was there, my brain was still in like, figure out how to fix this, figure out how to improve the situation instead of just, okay, now the slate is clean who would you hire for this position in an ideal world? And it's like, oh, I'm kind of excited about this now. Like now that we're past the old person, like let's figure out someone who would be awesome for this. And it, it's just, 
I don't know, like same thing. It's so hard in the moment to pull back and say like, you know, this deep down, this isn't working out and you really need to terminate this person. And the longer that it takes, the more unpleasant it is for the business and the more you risk striking down other team members along with them. Because, you know, your team usually knows that someone isn't carrying their weight sometimes before, you know, as the business owner. Yeah, no, that's so true. The other thing I've got to ask about is, so your spouse in the business. So how's that going? (laughs) You know, it goes well most days. It was a decision that I didn't take lightly. It's really great because you have somebody or I have somebody that I can trust like 100%. Like they're always in my corner. They're going to do what's right for the firm. That is really like key for that decision. And I didn't take it lightly. I actually reached out to a couple other people that I know that work with their spouse to just, you know, see what I might be missing here. And, you know, some of the things I'm cognizant of, of like not creating like a one person says this and the other person says this, or like how, what if a team member has some feedback for me, like, or feedback about Jay as a partner. So really trying to keep everything very professional and open in the communications. It was a little easier when Jay was simply doing, not simply, but focused solely in retirement plans because it was enough of a movement or enough of a silo away from what I do in terms of the wealth management. It was more compartmentalized. Like he he had a business line in his own world under the Flourish umbrella as opposed to being immersed as a key employee in Flourish. Yeah, exactly. And then, but then as the firm's needs changed, recognizing that he had the skill set, I mean, he has that investment knowledge and was able to kind of fill in in this offering there. And so, but also making sure that we're not creating a job description solely around what Jay's abilities are, but what the firm needs. And so, you know, just as you would do for like any teammate, making sure that it makes sense. And so we continue to refine the role as we've been in this transition. But I think some of the challenges too, like, so Jay and I had like a major argument over one of our kids and who did something he wasn't supposed to do, our seventh grader. And Jay, Jay could have prevented the situation had he like turned off the code for Xbox Live so our son wouldn't start buying video games uh-huh. like on our credit card. And this was the second time. And so I was just really mad because that's our only incentive for our son is like, getting them to do homework is like, and then you can have some video game times, but how do you give a kid who just stole from you twice? More video game <laughs> video time. games. Well, now he's yeah. got new games to play because he just, he just bought some. <laughs> I know, but I have the cord in my purse right now, so oh. he can't get on it because uh, anyway, so I was just kind of mad with Jay, but it's like, okay, you have to like leave that at the door at home and then show up in a professional way with each other today. And so we really try to be professional with one another and I definitely work kind of comes into the home, like in, in our conversations, but I don't really let the personal other than, you know, what we're up to any personal dynamics come into the workplace. I guess it's an, it's an interesting challenge that you have both ways, like the the challenge of work coming home with you and the challenge of home coming to work with you. Mm -hmm. So is there other like structure or things that you put in place or are you just a couple that's both pretty good at making those lines and honoring those lines? And so the lines just kind of work for you. 
So we sometimes have to create lines. So like when we were having challenges with the the one individual that we ended up letting go, like, okay, okay, we only have yet five minutes to talk about this. And then the conversation is done just because, you know, it's just not healthy to talk about it continuously. And so like work, personal and professional have kind of always flowed back and forth. Like Jay and I even like with this fundraiser that I was chairing an event for YWC in Minneapolis last week, like he, he was chairing or doing like a sub chair in it to get more men involved with this organization. So we really share a lot of our like professional and personal. And for us, it works. I actually asked Jay a little bit more like any advice. And, you know, he didn't have said advice, but I, I think there. he's always just been such a great supporter of me personally and professionally. You know, our interests are just so aligned and he cares about the work we're doing and building the firm and reaching more clients. And and out of curiosity, like structurally is you started the firm, he came in later. So like, is it is it a partnership with the two of you as a couple or functionally like you are the owner of the business? He is a key employee of the business as a spouse in the business. Yeah, it's this latter. So I'm 100% owner of Flourish. Obviously, the whole household's kind of relying on this to work. So, you know, dollars all flow to the same household at the end of the day. But yeah, you know, we've talked about it in Jace when where he like any success I have, like he he feels right a part of that. And so he's never been one, you know, like we've we've talked about, oh, do we change that at all? And he's not necessarily interested in changing the ownership because it all, the success all comes back to both of us. Interesting. And so are you, you still like happy with the structure going forward? Like this is, this is the direction for the foreseeable future or, or do you view this as a, you know, Jay's doing stuff because we're in a small business that you know, need some family support at the time, but ultimately the goal is you want to, hire non-family staff to grow away from a family business and Jay will go do another thing at some point down the road. You know, Jay still has interest in working a little more on the retirement planning side. So that's still a possibility. I think ultimately, I mean, I want to continue to grow with non-family members, although I say that and I have a daughter who is majoring in financial planning at Wisconsin oh, Madison. Oh, excellent. So you may have another associate yeah. hire, Phil, coming in another few years when she finishes. Yeah. Although I, I really want her to work elsewhere, but she has, she, this is coming from the girl when she was in high school, said, your job is so boring, I would never do it. And I'm like, oh, it's so not boring. It's so fun. And then she took a psychology class and she's like, I love the psychology. I'm like, that's most of what I do. And then she took an aptitude test and sure enough, came back as financial planner. So she interned with us last summer and she like said, like, I, I love this profession. I love that it's not cookie cutter. You have similar tools you use, but everybody's different and just lo- loved being a part of their life story. So she has the right motivation. Well, it is an interesting shift, though, of just like the industry and where we are that she took a psychology class and now she wants to come do this, right? Like Mm -hmm. in the past, you took like an econ finance class and someone said, oh, you should be a financial advisor. Now it's a psychology class that's queuing her up. I know just that's that's interesting to me about how the industry is shifting. 
Yeah, and recognizing that. And that's been one of the things that I've really tried to implement. So we use Money Quotient too, is bringing in different tools that help us get more at the heart of the client's goals and their money history. And so trying to like bring that into the firm, that's been a really great resource. And I know you've had Carol Anderson on too. Yeah, if, if folks, you know, we'll include a link out to the the Money Quotient website as well. But if if anyone's more curious about just the whole system of, well, I guess like systematizing your firm and your financial planning process and some of those softer questions, Carol's interview is an interesting one. So it's it's episode 59. So if anybody wants to go back and look here, uh, episode 59 with Carol Anderson just talks about that money quotient and systematizing a, a life planning centric process. Yeah. And, and I felt like for me personally, like I have had that innate skill to work with people on that level and bring out that type of a conversation. But yet I wanted to systematize it more for like up and coming planners in the firm and so that we had a common language. And it's really good, like even like the initial questionnaires that you use, which is like a financial satisfaction survey and then life transitions, like prospects come in, like telling me like, what what are those key points of worry? What are they experiencing? And it's just a great way to get to know them right away. It's another one of those interesting transition issues. Like when it's just you, that usually like, systematizing a process is nice just so it's a little maybe you can make it a little bit more efficient and work out some kinks but as soon as you start adding other advisors to the firm and then maybe stay up at night wondering like i wonder what they're actually saying to clients when i'm not in the room like just not like bad stuff but just like i wonder how good their advice is like really i wonder how they handle those situations and all of a sudden the idea of systematizing your planning process takes on a whole new level when you start wondering, like I, I, I wonder what their advice process looks like and whether it's anything like what I'm doing for my clients, even though we're all from the firm and in theory, giving a consistent service from the firm. And that coming from a larger firm, I really knew that I wanted to start creating systems and processes early on. So like even with Salesforce, we built out tons of processes to handle all aspects of the relationship. That was probably year two. And we continued to refine those, but it was to get get the pieces out of my head. And yet it's a lot easier to do it when you're in a smaller firm growing than it is, you know, when you're a large firm and you're having to standardize that across the entire firm. So Maybe that's a, a good transition to talk about that transition. So you know, as you said, you you started Flourish four years ago, just came just past your anniversary, you've had a great start and growth path with it, but not where you started your career. You know, when I when I had first met you, you were at a a much larger firm in the Minneapolis area as a as a partner there called Accredited Investors. And so can you talk to us a little bit about I guess like take us one steps back. So what was what was your world at, at accredited investors as you were growing your career in business there? So I was there about 13 years and I think like maybe it was two years into being there, I bought into the firm. So I was their first next generation of owners and I was a 10% owner. So that was my partnership piece. And so I had been with them 
for a while and kind of a combination of both like personal and professional reasons for wanting to create Flourish. And so about a year before I started Flourish, my mom was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Oh, so she right. had cancer. She's in remission now, Fantastic. which is good. So she's been in remission now for about six years. But during that time, she moved into, so they live in Wisconsin, more in a rural area where the quality of medical care just wasn't there versus what we have in Minneapolis area. So we moved my mom and my dad into the house with me. It was kind of like, yeah, I worked through this entire time, but helping figure out my mom's new medical team to figure out what kind of cancer she did have. And then just being with her during that time while she was you know, getting treatment. And so it was like that aha on moment of like, okay, life is too short. And you should be really, you know, there could be a better way. But during that time period, I didn't really have a lot to to really think about like, okay, how would I do this? But I knew that there was something else that I wanted to do in life. I I think that Accredited Investors is a great firm. I learned so much from them in terms of what I what I would create in business, how I would do things differently. And can you give us some context? Like, what did accredited do? How big was accredited? Like we've talked about is it was a larger firm than where you are now. But for folks who aren't familiar, like can you give a little bit of background or context on accredited? So size-wise, when I left, I think it was like 1.4 billion. You know, I don't remember exactly how many clients we had. I know I managed about a third of the client base. Originally, there were two partners that formed the firm together, and then I was that first partner. And then in like 2012-ish, they started to sell some more small like minority shares, um, like just a couple percent shares to people. And so there wasn't really, I didn't see the you know, as I looked at it professionally, like how the firm would transition. And I also had this idea in my head that, you know, I could, because I kind of thought, okay, I'll stay here for 10 more years because my shares had real value at that time because I was an owner for a period of time. 10% of a 1.4 billion AUM firm, like that's, that's, that's not a small dollar amount. Like that's a lot of wealth creation right there at a firm that was growing and moving forward. Yeah. And so, and that was also the hard piece too, because it was a very financially lucrative too. Like I had a good salary. I had good dividends. You know, 2008 was a hard year as we like put everything back in the business. And I think like just prior to that, so the way I did my buy and I did my first half, I used home equity to buy, buy in, paid that off. And then I, in Ross and Will, I owed the other half too. And then I ended up paying that back to them like right I took out another loan to pay them off so it was on the outside now and then we had the market correction the firm like was you know in past that 2008 period really strong financially so that was hard to to turn away so the sellers financed half like you bought a 10% slice all at once but the sellers financed half and then you essentially self-financed the other half using home equity to bring the cash to the table Correct. Yeah. And then, and I just didn't like that piece of owing them. So that when it came, when I could do another, like paid off the home equity side and do another loan and pay them off the rest of the loan, I, I did that. I mean, a lot of folks I know tend to go the other way. Like it's, it's, it's hard to get traditional financing. They want sellers who will just sell or finance it for them because, you know, often the terms can be a little more flexible than the stringency of a bank. Like I'm, I'm, 
I'm just wondering, like, what was what was the script in your head that was like, I'm fine taking the money from the bank, but I don't want to be on the hook to my partners. Maybe a feeling obligation that it just was, and it was the path that eventually I have to pay them off. And now I could establish some outside financing via the bank versus, you know, I had tapped my whole home equity before to get the one half. And so it just more of a obligation of like, okay, it's just, felt to me like, don't owe your partners money. So no other pressure or any other reason that it just felt like the right timing to do that. And how, how big was the first, like, when did you actually buy in right at the beginning when you came or you were there for a few years and then you got an opportunity to buy in? I was there for two years. I was at another firm where I did have some clients that followed me over to that firm. So that that was like a a plus. But and it was I think it was about two years in that I actually bought into the firm. So back in like 2003 or four time. It was in four 2004. Okay. Okay. I'm good with numbers, not so much dates. I yeah. always kind of throw the decades off a, off a little bit, but I think it was about 2004. So, I mean, I had value. At the same time, I saw a different path. Here was my thinking. I was thinking, okay, I'll just stay with the firm for 10 more years. I didn't really know my two the senior partners, like what their plan was when they were leaving, you know, nothing was ever really finalized. They still had time frame, you know, where they were at in their career. But I thought I'll stay 10 more years, then I'll just go do something like nonprofit and work in, you know, something else, you know, just to be financially ready to do that. And then with my mom's cancer, I just started me thinking about like life's too short. And, you know, I really did have that entrepreneurial spirit. I had lost confidence kind of being in that larger firm and via my WPO connections, I was the monthly case study where I kind of talked about just the firm and the partnership and just where I was at. And, you know, I realized that I just didn't have confidence in my ability, but yet talking to these women, they really challenged me to think about new possibilities. And I, I found I actually did have that confidence. It took me, it was hard like to know who to talk to during that time period because I felt like it's just such a small world and everybody. Yeah. Unfortunately, like our, yeah, our advisory industry is kind of a freakishly small world. Sometime of every, it feels like everybody knows everybody. Yeah. So it was like who to talk to. So I actually hired a woman, Jennifer Goldman. Do you know Jennifer? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She does a lot of of kind of operations, technology, business management, consulting work. Yeah. So I hired her and I said, okay, I want to hire you for a six-month engagement. I said, I don't know how. I'm not sure what I will decide at the end here, but I want to know like how would I go about putting this firm together? Like what, what's the technology offering? Like who are those strategic partners? So she did a lot of legwork for me and like coming back and saying, okay, here's the three CRMs that I would, you would look at. And she'd get me like demos of them. And she said the plus and minuses of this and help me narrow in on choices. And she also kept me accountable for like moving forward, whether it was like the logo or, you know, getting the firm name, like all of those different components to putting together the firm. So that was incredibly helpful. So she was your she was your consultant as you were just putting together like, okay, what does my business actually look like? Like mm-hmm. I need to pick a CRM, I need to pick financial planning software, I need to pick portfolio accounting, I need a platform, like just figuring that stuff out. Yeah. And this is like the hardware that you'll need and like here's the pros and cons between like office space and doing like a where you rent the offices or what do you call that? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the the leasing spaces, like Regis and WeWork and all those. Yeah, exactly. And so she really helped me kind of think through like the components, which ones had to come first. And and so that that was incredibly helpful. I remember then at the end telling her, I'm like, I told my partner so that I'm leaving. And she's like, I didn't think you'd do it. And yeah, they did. <laughs> I would say there was also another like driver in the decision, which was, so we had a buy-sell agreement that was written when it was just the two major partners and me. And it it was kind of wishy-washy and it needed, it had some language that, you know, could be questioned on how it could be interpreted. And so they were, as a firm, we were working on a new buy-sell agreement. Well, this new buy-sell agreement was going to be really kind of that final straw, like you, you can't, Oh, because like, so this was all the provisions around like non-competes, non-solicits, what happens if you leave that kind of stuff that was exactly a little wishy-washy in the first one. But of course, when you're doing the update, you tend to tighten those things up a little bit more. And so that became your like your moment of truth for am I, am I in or am I not? Exactly. And so, and we were tightening it up because we were bringing on some new, you know, small percentage partners and just was the right time to clean it up. But it was also for me, that was like the only minority partner who really had any value because my value had appreciated during that time. And so the new agreement, and I don't know that they actually went with this one. I think that they might've done a different agreement was really restrictive. It was like, I couldn't sell my shares for a longer period of time. And so that was the like the final, like, okay, you have to tell them because you can't sign this new agreement and, and you can do it. You can create this firm and, you know, see your vision realized. And so I still remember being in, we had a little library there and telling them, and it was hard, but I, I, you know, I did a lot of research. I talked to a lot of people. I had a great support network. I even remember I called one of the consultants that we used to work with and talked to that person about like, okay, this is what I'm thinking. You like, you know me, what do you think? And I got the go ahead there. So I felt like I did my due diligence and research, which also helps me move forward in decisions. And yet it, it was hard because again, that buy-sell agreement had some inconsistencies. And so I didn't know how it would be interpreted as I left. And so there was a legal negotiations, you know, for a couple of months after I left trying to figure out how to, how to part ways. Just trying to figure out like, are you allowed to take your clients or not? Do you have to buy them? Do you have to leave them behind? Can they follow you, but they can't solicit them? Like just all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do you pay for, do you pay for them? How do we pay you? What's the solicit period? And so you, because the agreement was ambiguous. I mean, obviously you have your interpretation of how you think you want it to work. They may or may not have their own that could be different. So you had to make the leap before even knowing whether or how many of your clients would be able to come with you or what you would be able to do. Yeah. I knew I couldn't solicit. I knew that would be a provision. I didn't know what the discount, like would I take certain discounts because there was some inconsistencies there in terms of discounts on my share price. And you know, you didn't know what they might do in terms of challenging, you know, the firm's existence or the ability to move forward. And it was, I think the harder part was messaging. We never came up with any shared messaging, but leaving clients without being able to say goodbye because, you know, I had been a part of their lives. And that was really hard because, you know, I obviously couldn't reach out. Some people 
definitely did reach out to me, you know, once I left Flourish, social media is really good for for being able to find find an individual. And it's it's it works a lot better than the yellow pages used to be. Or like if you were gonna put up your own firm, you had to get that yellow page that in there as quick as possible and hope that someone would see it in a timely manner. Now they now they just Google you and yeah. contact you the next day on LinkedIn or or Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, but and then the messaging too. So you know, Kathy's starting a single person firm, but yet it was me on day one. But I had a huge resource being the BAM community with me. So was that part of the appeal for for BAM? Like as a startup, just it it, it helps giving more gravitas to say, well, you know, I'm 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 me, but I'm also part of this larger platform with tens of billions of dollars. So your assets will be well seen, and you don't have to worry that it's just me. Definitely. I use that in my messaging. And I also really believe that too, because here were all of these resources put together and available on day one. So, but yet it would be, you know, if the client reached out to me and then I had at 12 months where I could solicit clients and I did reach out to a few clients, but then in the end, it, it just felt like, okay, like Flourish is growing with just growth in other clients. I missed some of the clients that I hadn't been able to say goodbye to. Just that kind of interaction with the prior firm. I just wanted to move forward and continue to build Flourish with if clients chose to reach out to me, that was great, but I didn't go after all of like my prior clients. So I can only imagine the the pain of having these clients that you've worked with so long and and not even just that you can't solicit them, but literally that you can't say goodbye. Mm-hmm. It was hard, you know, because you'd think back or like, I remember this one client who would drive a motorcycle and I'd see a motorcycle on the street and I'd think of that client or, you know, you might see something via LinkedIn, but you couldn't reach out to, you know, even say congratulations or it's hard. You're, you're there for those key moments, like the birth of the baby or that heart attack or, you know, they're the first one they call to tell you that the, the wife has cancer and they call you at home and, yeah, and you can't control the messaging and you can't even like, you know, say that appreciation of the honor that being a part of their lives, even for that short period of time. So help us understand a little more, like not to, not to throw your former partners under the bus or anything at all, but I'm just trying to understand you, you're, So most people come in the business, like the dream is I can work my way into a firm. I can work myself up to partnership, make good dollars, participate in the equity growth of the firm, be able to have relationships and drive the growth of the business. And and you were there with all of that and then left. (laughs) Yep, I left. You know, I think that... Life is just too short to not try. Like, I do you think what I had is more of an entrepreneurial spirit to me and being in a large established firm that they were way past that entrepreneurial spirit? Like, it wasn't there for me. Just because as firm gets larger, just process have to start, inst- processes systematize, you have to institutionalize stuff a little more. I mean, presuming what by 1.4 billion under management, you were. 35, 40, 45 employees or something like that? Yeah, probably 35 to 40, kind of depended on the moment. But 
Yeah. So too, like I didn't really see the path to an internal succession plan for the firm or how that would all work out in the end. And so I thought I could create my own succession plan. The math, you know, if you're willing to do take the risk of building the firm, and I totally want to have an internal succession plan as Flourish grows larger, but you know, like 10% owner of the firm versus being 100%, you know, as you kind of build up those numbers, you can, you can make up the value value of your firm pretty quickly as long as you have some good growth as long as you have good growth which you <laughs> yeah. weren't even sure if you were going to have because you didn't know if you could have clients solicit clients bring any clients or or what your legal entanglements were going to be exactly but like i think probably when i knew i really had entrepreneurism is like signing the first lease for our building here and i'm like oh Okay, so I think it's like 26,000 a year since then. We've had to double our space. But early on, I'm like, okay, three years, you know, just doing the math. Okay, if things don't work out, I'll just be, I'll be out, you know, 70, yeah, 80,000. Yeah, almost 80, 80 grand with some rent increases, inflation increases just on the rent. And then I thought like when I hired the first team member in September, I'm like, wow, I'm responsible for someone else. And but yet I loved it. I like love that calculated risk of and I think like early on when you were saying, why didn't that come to me that I could just kind of just scale in and be at the size that you know we were at? I, I think my mind really just thinks about growth and building and partnerships are challenging. I mean, you have different personality styles and different influences of control and how partnerships work together. And, and so that's hard. And, you know, I really think that accredited, I think that they do good work. And I think that there are good people that are over there. And I have a lot of appreciation for everything I learned at the firm, but I just didn't see my future in the firm. And in my vision, what I did see was like, oh, maybe I'll be there 10 years and and then I'll go do something else versus then all of a sudden reality or like that thought came to my mind is like, why do you have to wait 10 years to do what you want to do? And just found my confidence via like my WPO and those connections of like challenging me of, you know, their business owners and they're like, you can do it. And I remember there was one, she's a good friend of mine, Jane, there was a time I said, you know, I think I'm just going to stay put. This is kind of as I was going through these decisions, like things seem really good right now. And she's like, oh, Kathy, you always say that, like, but yet you you just need to take this risk. And and so then I did. (laughs) So from the from the other end, because there are a lot of firm owners out there from the other side of this that basically like you are their ideal candidate and successor. Right? You were young, good at the advising business, strong communication skills, entrepreneurial spirit. Right, A lot of large firms really struggle with keeping the entrepreneurial spirit or finding entrepreneurial next generation owners because frankly a lot of them tend to do what you ended up doing which is leaving and making their own thing so i'm just wondering for a firm owner that's listening to this that's wondering like how do i not lose my young entrepreneurial person the way that kathy ultimately moved on do you have any advice for that person like what what kinds of things might have made you stay or would make someone like you stay? What makes it, what makes it appealing? Like, is it just down to you just can't be the entrepreneurial person you want to be in a large firm? So I don't feel like I was able to really 
have that voice or really like that true leadership that I wanted. But that's maybe like shame on me for not trying to bring that more forward or push that. But like my interpretation of the culture was that there just wasn't that space. And if I really wanted that entrepreneurism or really having an equal voice, like I had to go go to a different space to create that voice. I think the mix of how I wanted to lead in the community, both personally and professionally, finding a more supportive place to do to have that mix. So just kind of come down to differences in vision, like just your vision was to take it a different place than where they wanted to take it. And so you couldn't do the particular entrepreneurial things that you wanted to do because they wanted to do different things and they still had 90%. So that was that. Well, I think that I would have an equal vote as long as it was the same vote, same vote. That's uh, that it happens in a lot, a lot of firms with successor owner partners. Like it's really hard not to have that happen. I, yeah. And, and I get it because it's like, I mean, they started the firm and but I don't know if there was enough space to at that time where it was trying to figure out what's the internal secession plan. And, and I wanted to buy more shares, but I you know, wasn't given that opportunity for, for you know, whatever reason. Oh, so a little bit's kind of a limbo on ownership as well. Like 10, 10% is you know, of a 1.4 billion AUM firm. Like that's a meaningful dollar amount and a, and a sizable stake, mm-hmm. but it's not 20 or 30 or 40. Like, as you said, you know, I, I, if you get some good growth, 100% of your new thing can replace 10% of a big thing in decent time. Would have been harder if you had 30 or 40% of accredited. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that was answering no. I But I also think if you look at internal succession plan, like the senior partners really have to do a meaningful effort to reduce their share ownership if it's going to happen because the firm value just continues to get more and more expensive. And so I just didn't see like how all of that was going to happen. And, you know, since then, I think that they've brought on new owners and, you know, maybe hopefully continues to be more diluted in terms of the ownership piece. But I, I just didn't see how that internal succession plan was really, I mean, there was this conversation having this is what we want, but I didn't see necessarily the actions at that time to make that happen. So there's definitely how do you create space for that voice and a different style? Like I, I have a different style of leadership and, you know, maybe it's not as loud and out there. It's maybe a little bit more in building relationships behind the scenes too. Yeah, but I, you know, I also, and I think too, like, here's new owners coming on board. And, you know, like I agreed to marry, I say in quotes, like, with the first two partners, because it is almost like a marriage. And then the partnership is definitely like a divorce. And I've been divorced in life. So Jay is my final, my second and final husband is like what I like to describe him as. But I, so I've been through that process. And so it's really hard. And then here, like, and maybe it's just kind of the role I played. I was that next generation of owner, but then we were bringing on other owners and you don't necessarily get to pick like, you know, who those people are and who are you going to end up with? And like, what happens when the two senior partners leave and, you know, what does this firm look like? And I felt I could have more control by building Flourish myself. So having been on both sides of the divide, like, are there things you you miss having been in a larger firm environment that are now challenging when you're out on your own building from scratch and you've got a few people now, but you're not, not the resources you had when you were 35 plus. 
at the old firm? Not really. Like the piece that I missed on day one was like paperwork. I'm like, oh my gosh, like what have I got to myself? First job hire someone to do this paperwork. <laughs> or, well, we have an outsourced IT firm, but like, you know, having somebody that I could yell down the hall to, to figure out. My, my computer is not working. Someone come fix this. Well, here's my really silly story is like miscommunication, I'm sure with that person was helping me with technology, but we ended up buying a monochrome printer. And so I could not figure out why it wouldn't print in color. And yet I was so busy. And my daughter ended up calling and she's like, Mom, do you know you bought a monochrome printer? I'm like, Oh, oh! I thought I just well, wasn't clicking the right <laughs> setting and print setup or something like yeah. color, but then it kept flipping back to black and white. I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> but I love being more hands-on with clients. I love kind of being able to dig into the planning, the planning work again. You know, I had to delegate a lot more to the team and I had so many different team members at my prior firm. So there's so many different like groups that you would work with versus I like a little more centralized team. So I think that has been good. I feel like you can still get all of the same resources and my technology platforms even stronger by having all these integrations. So there's really nothing that I miss. I also like being, oh, like we really didn't do a, a, when I was there, a real formal strategic planning process. You know, so that was one of the things I implemented in like that first eight months where I, I use Traction or EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gino, Gino Wickman's Traction. Yeah, we've had a few people that have talked about it. We'll make sure we put a copy of that in the in the show notes as well. He's, he's got both a book that I highly recommend called Traction, all about like how do you gain more traction in your business to grow, and a whole like training system about how to run your growing business called the entrepreneurial operating system mm-hmm. or EOS. Yeah. And so that was like one of the things I knew, okay, for what I wanted from a business was a strategic plan and measurements and re- really kind of like one of the concepts in that book is creating. So not only your strategic plan and breaking it down, you know, to your three-year plan and your one-year plan, but working on like, what are your quarterly goals? They call them rocks. Like, what do you have to put front and center to move the form, firm forward? And so I, I just love like implementing those tools and systems, which is, you know, again, why WPO, it's here's a group of women business owners that, you know, many of them use traction, you know, for their own firms. So it's it's been great to be able to figure out what business practices I want as a firm. Well, it, it does strike me, you know, you, you had talked early on about just value of study groups and, and, and impact the study groups. But, you know, as we've been talking about it here, you had said like, you know, your culture snapshot system came from your WPO group and using traction came from your WPO group and the, the confidence to take the leap and go out on your own and do all of this in the first place came from your, your WPO group. So you know, I guess just, I hope for folks that are listening that are trying to figure out like where where do you go to get inspiration ideas and how to run your business better like you're hearing it right here like this is part of why study groups matter i'll admit the frustration for me is and in kathy you kind of said it even in, in in your study groups like a lot of your just how to better run the business as a business stuff mm-hmm. comes from not the financial planning world like it's your it's what you're doing with WPO and, and other business owners, but not 
not in our financial planning world. It, it's I hadn't quite appreciated it until the past couple of years, but truly, like, there's a lot of resources out there for advisors if you want to become more productive and efficient in the practice that you're running. Like, lots of tools and coaches and consultants and folks like that. But for that subset of, of us that really want to build businesses, like build and scale businesses that grow beyond ourselves. There's really very, very little in our advisory world that actually teaches what I call like real business ownery stuff. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And I, I I think that that's where it's been a nice blend between my study groups of people in the profession. And yet I think we could probably do, we, we do talk about some aspects of running the business, but I think there's a lot to learn from different types of businesses and be able to bring those new concepts in. So where does it go for you from here? You left because you wanted to build this vision of a firm your way. So now you got it. Like so the, the dog chasing the car just caught up to it. So what next for you from here? Where does it go? So I see continuing to grow the business to be able to attract new clients where I have a book that's coming out this fall. It's it's mostly written right now. I've been working with a company called Advantage Media, and I met them actually via FPA and they work with WPO too. So Advantage Media. So we'll, we'll put a link out to them. So they, like, they help people run and create their, like build and create their own books. That's their thing. Yep. And then they help with the marketing aspect to it too. Oh, and I actually work with another marketing firm too. So AES Virtual Marketing. So I'd say in December 2016 is when I started working with them. And again, I got an accountability partner to keep our, our blogs and our thoughts and our social media moving on Flourish. And so Anna Shea and her team have been really great to work with. And I've seen that it's really changed like where our clients are, like qualified clients are coming from. And we're attracting a lot of people just like via like internet presence, you know, they're finding us that direction. It's like in since that time period, about 57% of our clients are coming, coming that direction. And the rest is really more of my professional slash personal network, which speaks to a lot of my community involvement. So that's, that's been really good. So I think from where do we go from here, we'll continue to create like flourish brand awareness and we'll continue to grow our team with the people that want to be here and then and reach more clients and just kind of do it and with like best business practices so that's my goal is to to impact and be part of more people's lives and continue to build flourish and so what's the like what's the book about what have you created here so the book is called Flourish Financially with the tagline of values, transitions, and big conversations. And the goal of the book is to help people have the necessary but sometimes uncomfortable conversations with around money with their spouse, with their kids, with their parents, and even with their friends, breaking down that taboo around money. So that's what the book leads to. And the first part of it really starts with understanding your own money story and your history. How do you come together to talk to 
Talk Through Money. And the second third is all about how do you plan for those key transitions, whether it's career or retirement. And yeah, and then there is a book. And so it is, it's all come together. Advantage Media has been great to work with. Again, that was like coming when I committed to them at a time where I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to do this? But we, we just worked. I had an editor. So do you do the writing and they edit or is this one of those like you record stuff and then they help you turn it into a manuscript? It's both. So it's, it's a little bit of talk your book. So the process was, I had a vision for the book, but I really didn't have the idea on how it would come together. And then Ivy basically like laid out, she's like, here's how I can see the chapters. And, you know, we move things around. And so then we had like a great outline for the book. And then Ivy would send me a list of questions and like, stories or like, tell me about a time when fear got in the way of a money decision, you know, whether it's from my own experience or, you know, working with clients, but she'd give me all of these like questions because we have lots of little side stories in the book to help people relate to the conversations. And so she'd give me my homework and then we'd use prior blogs that we'd put together and kind of like, oh, here's some content or here's how we think, think about it. And then I do writing and then she'd do some writing and then she'd pull it together. But like each week I'd sit down with her. And so I do my prep work ahead of time, which would take about eight hours or so. And then I'd sit down with her for about an hour and a half via phone and talk through what I meant in my different pieces and the vision or maybe have her go out and pull a little research from some some area and then just kind of came together. And then now it's been a back and forth with different editors at Advantage Media in terms of we're right now we've got like our book cover and our jacket for our book that I owe them back that final proof. And then my book actually looks like a book right now with like the images and yeah. So one final edit and I'll go back to them, but then it's all, what do you do with the book? Yeah. And what, what is your plan for what you're going to do with the book? Yes, I've hired Advantage to do some of the, or to do the marketing for the book, you know, both PR and marketing. And the plan is to just build brand awareness. And, you know, there's a lot of credibility in being an author and use that in business development opportunities. And then also maybe, you know, I I think of like some, some people that you know, they're really interested in like, how do you have these conversations or I don't know how to talk about money? You know, hopefully it reaches a broader audience that maybe I won't touch directly, but I will through through the book. And so what does it cost to hire a firm like Advantage to just like shepherd you through this process? Well, it's a, okay. I'll say it's expensive, but if you do the math in terms of, you know, bringing in clients or you attract a couple of clients and a few years of their revenue that they would give to you, but it's about forty-five dollars to $50,000. Okay. And this for them is everything like they're helping you write it, create it, lay it out, distribute it, PR it, market it. Like it's, it's meant to be a holistic package. It is. And and there's an additional cost on the marketing side and it just kind of depends on what you do with it. But that that is everything from getting it into print on Amazon and and yeah, and just having them as the partner. And then it's been great too. So I've started to attend like they had a marketing conference in January and they have other conferences that really kind of help think about like business development, marketing, how to get your message out. And so so that that piece, like I really believe in the opportunity that it will create. And it's been fun to, well, 
fun. Maybe in a few more months, I'll say it's been a fun process. They've made it, made it, I guess, easy as can be, but it, you know, it's definitely. It still takes work. Takes time. Yeah. You know, you, you need fewer than half a dozen clients ever cumulatively to make back a many multiples return on investment for the, for the spend. You know, it's still kind of the fascinating thing about our business. Like just long-term clients are so absurdly valuable to the business in the long run that you can actually justify a lot of costs if it brings in just a few people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think that's been one of the pieces that, oh, it may be initially struggling to see that as like, wow, that's really expensive, but you can make it up in terms of who you attract. And so the book was almost ready to release like in four weeks, but we took a step back and said, okay, let's really get this marketing aspect of it down. Like, how are we going to use it? What's the PR initiative? And so that's why we're waiting till September for the release, but it'll go to print this summer. Very cool. As we come to the end, this is a podcast around success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is just that success means different things to different people, sometimes different things to us at, at different stages of our own lives. You know, as, as you kind of noted, like you, your success for a while was about growing as a partner and accredited, and then success was about not growing as a partner and accredited anymore and, and going and doing your own thing. So as you look forward from here, I'm I'm just wondering, like, how do you define success for yourself? Okay, I'm going to answer that in like two ways, because one is a story that happened as I chaired this big event for YWC Minneapolis, and I brought my family to to the event, and their focus is on eliminating racism and empowering women and girls. And so I had the opportunity to speak in front of this group of like a thousand people, and my son was in the audience. And at the end, you know, I was just saying goodbye to him, and he's just he stopped me and he gave me a kiss, and he said, and he's a seventh grader, so this is where it makes it more interesting. So mom, I'm really proud of you. And so that is definitely success. So I think about that and, you know, being my true self in like all areas of life, like being authentic in my friendships and with my family, and then being a leader in my profession and in the community. So that's how I define success. Mm, very cool. You've had a frankly amazing track record of it so far. You, we, I know we didn't even have time really to talk about it in, in depth here, but you're involved in a lot of organizations over the years in your community, in our financial planning world, as we said, you know, National Board for FPA and your local Minnesota chapter, but, you know, WPO and WICA and a lot of other organizations as well. So thank you for everything you've done to, to contribute back to the profession and to society and, and joining us on the podcast as well. You deserve just as much thanks. You've given so much back to the profession and our society too. So I appreciate you and thanks for this opportunity to share a little bit of my story. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.